WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. Hope you and your family had a great Thanksgiving. I'm Ben Thompson. Thousands of folks could get access to health care this week. Medicaid expansion finally expected to take effect on December 1st. And it's a battle that has been years in the making. Finally signed into law in March, but it then faced even more hurdles. A provision in the state budget delayed the rollout several months. And now it's actually happening. Joining us now is Nicole Carib. She is the executive director of policy development for the North Carolina Healthcare Association. Nicole, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. All right, so put this in context. We talk about this a lot in the news, but I don't know that we always do a, the really, we don't do it justice when it comes to explaining uh, how big a deal Medicaid expansion is here in North Carolina. Help us understand. So Medicaid expansion is going to allow for 600,000 North Carolinians to be covered by insurance, which I know sounds like an unfathomable number, but that means your neighbors, your friends, um, people in your community who aren't able to go to a doctor, aren't able to have those um, procedures, the things that we may take for granted as um you know, me, myself being covered by health insurance, they're finally going to have access to all that routine care that is so important for our health and wellness. Um, and even though I know this is good news for hundreds of thousands of people, and I don't want to dwell on the bad news, but I also want to point out, and this had been a decade in the making, and that um, Republicans were not on board for the longest time. Then they did sort of have a change of the heart in the last few years, passed this legislation. Um, but but what did these delays, what did it mean for those 600,000 people you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you're right that the, to get to this point of getting Medicaid expansion took a very long time, um, but we did see quite a shift. And yeah, for those individuals, they simply did not receive health care coverage. And, you know, the individuals are a really important part of this. Also, you know, employers and um, hospitals are impacted as well in that they are receiving now uh, money to be able to continue to provide care to these individuals, but also to be able to um, pay their employees. So we know healthcare is um, a business. It's one of the largest businesses in North Carolina. And so this is going to have sweeping impacts for uh, both patient care, but then also on the back end for those who provide the care to patients. And for people like yourself and like me who, who have health insurance, it might be um, difficult to understand, but explain who these people are. These are people in, in most circumstances are, are, are working and, and have a job. They just can't afford the health insurance. You totally got that right. So um, these are people who are working full time, who might be self-employed. Um, we've heard of the kind of those in the coverage gap tend to be farmers, fishermen, veterans, um, you know, people who you may look at them and think, oh, gosh, they have to have health insurance. Right. Um, but they are truly in that gap of people who do not. So um, it, it is going to uh, open up the ability for them to be able to see a primary care physician to get that needed surgery, um, to be able to get all those, uh, you know, appointments that we may take for granted. Which is a, just a game changer for, for, for anybody. How, how do folks know if they're eligible? So everyone will have to apply come 
December 1. So uh, you can apply online. You can go to your local DSS office. So um, it'll be really important once December 1 happens for folks to see if they are eligible and um you know it really december one is the the first time everyone can do that it's not before so um you know definitely um check in with epass or with dss and see if you are um, an eligible candidate and then what does the process actually look like uh, of actually getting on medicaid it's december 1st you, you go to the website you sign up then what happens yeah, then you will be notified if you're eligible or not. And then once, you know, if you are eligible, you are going to be able to um, start seeing your care providers um, and see who is in network with your care provider. So I know that um, the state and others are working really hard on that communication in that transition and hospitals are ready to be able to provide care for um, newly eligible folks on Medicaid as well. And for folks who are not on Medicaid and they don't need it, um, why should they care? What impact will this have on, on the larger population, the larger economy? Yeah, so, you know, taxpayer dollars are already funding people who don't have access to health insurance, whether it's through, um, you know, the health insurance premiums that we pay or through um, just our general, you know, money that we are going to be able to now have more people covered, which means that they're going to be able to get their ongoing routine care. Um, and that's going to have not only a positive impact for people who may still be able to work, um, who are not sick, they're not taking sick days, but it also means that for that care that's already being provided by hospitals where they aren't receiving any money, and now that they, they will be providing care for people with Medicaid, um, they're going to be able to reinvest that money into their communities, into their staffing, to be able to um, continue to improve and um, enhance the services that they already have and that they're offering to the community. So, um, you know, we've seen that in other states where Medicaid has been expanded, it has helped the economy, it has helped job growth in healthcare. So we wouldn't expect anything different in North Carolina. Now, what would your message be to lawmakers after uh, a decade and delays of this? What would your message be now that it's finally happening? <laughs> that we did it and that we are so thankful that we are to this point and that we're doing it and that now it is important that we have expanded Medicaid to make sure that North Carolinians have great access to care. That doesn't just mean health insurance. It also means being able to get appointments timely, to see quality providers, and to make sure that our health care is affordable. So we have taken one really important step and we've still got steps to take. And we're excited to do it. All right, Nicole Karam. Nicole, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Charlotte City leaders recently signing off on stepping up fines for folks parked illegally. Right now, fines used to start at just about 25 bucks, but a nonprofit is applauding this, the decision to increase the fine to $100. We spoke to Sustain Charlotte just before that final decision was made. Joining us now is Meg Fensel. She's the Director of Engagement and Impact for Sustained Charlotte. Meg, welcome back to Flashpoint. Thank you. All right, so 
explain what what's behind the push for higher fines. Um, I mean, devil's advocate here, you know, inflation is still something that folks are grappling with. Uh, why do we need higher parking fines? Well, the fines for parking in bike lanes, streetcar right-of-way, blocking sidewalks and loading zones is currently $25. So it's not much of a disincentive to drivers. And the reason that we're so concerned about this is this is infrastructure that we've all paid for as taxpayers. So we not only pay for the roads, we, we pay for all those other forms of transportation. And if we want people to actually use them, it's important that they be unimpeded and open for people to use. Yeah, and what's behind the idea of $100? I mean, is that sort of arbitrary or is there some sort of um, other cities, other places that have shown that has actually really made a difference? I think for, for most people, $25, I won't say everyone, but for many people, $25 is, is something that they're maybe willing to, to gamble with not getting a ticket or not a big deal if they do get a ticket. Uh, but for most people, the, the $100 is enough of a disincentive that they would reconsider their decision to park in one of these really important areas for other forms of transportation. I feel like some folks who might be watching this who might live in the suburbs or in other parts uh, outside of Charlotte, maybe watch this and be like, well, what's what's the big deal about parking? Why like why does that matter? Explain why this is really a, a much bigger issue, not only when it comes to the city's transit and transportation plan and how we use our bike lanes and things like that, but also it's a big deal when it also comes to safety. Yes. So in Charlotte, people who walk and ride bicycles only account for 3% of street users. And that number is probably so low, partially because it is not very safe in many areas to walk and ride bikes, because there's there's nowhere really on our streets that's carved out as a real network to do that. But those people riding bikes and walking account for nearly a third of all traffic deaths. So they are the most vulnerable users of our streets. And Charlotte has set what's called a vision zero goal. That's a goal to end traffic fatalities and serious injuries on our streets. We're not gonna reach that goal if the streets aren't safest for our most vulnerable street users. And also the city of Charlotte passed a strategic mobility plan. And this is really the vision for how people will travel within Charlotte in the coming decades. We know that population growth is coming. Currently three out of four people drive a car to work alone. And the projection is that by 2040, combined with our population growth and continuing that driving alone trend, we would need to double our road capacity if we don't shift to a 50% share of people getting to work and taking daily trips by walking, riding bikes, riding public transportation, carpooling. So we really need to rethink the way that we use our existing street space and that we protect the rights of people to use those streets safely, whether they're driving, walking, biking, using public transportation. And currently the streets aren't really working very well for people who are outside of a car. Because as it stands right now, um, you can have somebody parked um, illegally on say a, a street in Uptown near Trade and Tryon and it blocks a streetcar, and then the streetcar has to wait. And you have, to your point, this whole mode of transportation that the city has paid millions and millions and millions of dollars for, all at a standstill with people on board because of one illegally parked car. That's right, you, you've summed it up perfectly there. Um, 
we all make make these investments as taxpayers. It's important that we invest in public transit because obviously we can't continue the, the pattern of, of almost everyone just driving alone, uh, but we need to protect that investment. It's a, a fiscally responsible thing to do. It's it's the right thing to do. And it's the way that, that we're gonna grow into to being a really uh, vibrant city where everyone has access to opportunities. I, I make the comparison, you know, we've all invested in roads as well, and I can't just go and decide to park my car right in the middle of a lane of general purpose travel on South Boulevard and go shopping. I need to find an appropriate place to park that's not going to blo uh, block the, the flow of traffic. So um, oftentimes bike lanes and sidewalks are seen as optional, but they really are an integral part of the transportation network that everybody needs to have access to. And a single blocked car on a bike lane could cause a person riding a bike to have to veer into the general purpose lane and create a very dangerous situation. And just knowing, seeing how blocked the bike lanes often are is a real disincentive for people who want to try riding a bicycle for transportation. They look at that and they say, wow, I'd love to use that bike lane, but it just doesn't look safe. So they don't even try. Uh, another issue that I think you and I have talked about, parking minimums, the idea that there has to be a minimum amount of parking for projects around the city and that makes real estate more expensive and makes us more car dependent and all these things. Do you feel like when, when it comes to some of these issues that some city leaders want to be one city, but they're sort of dragging their feet on some of these key issues that would put us in that sort of mode? It's time that we, we need to make some tough decisions. We've sort of picked the low hanging fruit and done the easy work. And now it's the time for Charlotte leaders to decide what type of city we want to become. And we need to consider what type of city we are now, but really looking to the future, we need to make some critical decisions about supporting the ease of people getting around by other forms of transportation. And if we, if we require way overbuilt parking, it's going to make it much more difficult to build the type of walkable community that we need. Prioritizing parking instead of, uh, of people and pedestrians. All right, Meg Fensel. Meg, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, this week, Charlotte City leaders are approving massive changes for University City. Despite some pushback, Charlotte City Council approving a huge community for the area. The 182-acre development off John Adams Road will have housing, retail, and a new elementary school. Some members of the city's zoning committee have concerns about where the development will be. Those of us who were opposed to the petition believe that the proximity more than um, three-quarters of a mile up John Adams Road made this too far away from transportation. Developers promising to donate at least nine acres of land to the county to create a public park there in the neighborhood. Next up on Flashpoint, the local organization working to help veterans as they come back home. Welcome back to Flashpoint. The statistics are shocking. 17 veterans die by suicide every day in this country and their unique mental health struggles mean getting help can be tough. But Hopeway, a local facility dedicated to helping veterans, is working to change those numbers. And today, Seeking Solutions, WCNC Charlotte's Michelle Bowen talks with one local veteran and young dad who says he was suicidal for getting help. Cameron Maxwell did two very dangerous tours in Afghanistan, saw friends die, himself got injured. He says when he got home, the PTSD got so bad that he couldn't even handle story time with his young daughter. Now, though, he's doing okay. 
and he's sharing his story in hopes of helping others. That's you, Dad. The Maxwell household is not exactly a calm one. Oh, gosh. Here we go. Charlotte is three, Everett just one, and then there's Paddington. You want to... I know, but mommy has to talk to the camera. Mom Brittany was a school principal and is now an administrator with CMS. Okay. Oh, yeah. And Dad Cameron was in the army. She is a handful. The funnest handful. Just a year ago, Cameron admits as much as he loves being a dad, he was overwhelmed. Having nightmares every night. Drinking till I didn't have to have nightmares. There were two very difficult tours in Afghanistan. The first deployment, yeah, I lost 16 friends in in a year and then my truck gets blown up and then my second deployment it was scarier because it, it was no longer vehicles that were blown up it was it was the ground beneath you it was people and that was just scarier you don't know if that next step is your last medically discharged from the army cameron says the stress of the birth of their second child sent his ptsd into overdrive i had a meltdown with my wife um, and told her I was suicidal. He got help at Hopeway, a Charlotte-based mental health facility with a special program designed just for veterans. Veterans, when they come here, they get a unique treatment plan, and we determine a plan that includes medicines, includes holistic therapy, includes medical approaches. An Army reservist himself, the psychiatrist in charge of the program, says they tailor therapies to match veteran-specific needs. It's the least we can do as citizens to try to give back to those people and help them live better, happier lives. Everett, come here, bud. Cameron's wife says Hopeway gave him the tools he needed to cope with day-to-day -day life. I feel like it challenged him and it made him realize like there is there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is like he doesn't have to live that way. Hopeway gave me a new take on life. I, I can just be present in the moment and be present in all the moments instead of being lost in a fog. That's enough. It's like a weight lifted off my shoulders that I get to be a dad. In Charlotte, Michelle Bowden, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. With the holidays here, a lot of folks spending the weekend without a family and without knowing where their next meal might come from. A new report from the USDA shows the largest increase in food insecurity since the 2008 recession. And now local nonprofits from across the country are trying to handle the demand. It's all the result of families uh, dealing with the economic pressure of inflation uh, and really struggling to meet all of their basic needs. It is a record-breaking time at food banks across the country. Just recently, we had our largest distribution day ever, a reflection of the amount of demand that's out there. Atlanta Community Food Bank CEO Kyle Wade says they're helping 230,000 families a month. That's about 40% more than they helped 18 months ago. What that translates into day-to-day -day is more kids, more seniors, more families, um, who are having to rely upon charitable food just to make it through the day. He doesn't think that demand will slow down soon. If anything, the data next year is going to go up even more, uh, show a more significant increase. Here in North Carolina, there's a particular focus on kids. Right now, nearly 21% of kids live in food insecure homes. By 2025, the state wants to drop it to 17.5%. And it's a challenge as food banks across the country deal with fewer resources after a spike in help during COVID. This government funding is running out. 
for many programs that were resourced during the pandemic. Those funds are going away, but the needs are not. All of it's coming together to create the perfect storm for the families that were already uh, living on the margins. Now it's pushing them over the edge. Folks, come interact with us on social media. I'm on Instagram, X, Facebook as well. And if there's something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.